This is the current federal tax developments for the week of May the 22nd, 2023. Current federal tax developments are brought to you by Kaplan Financial Education and by your state society of CPAs. Ed Zollers, and we're going to talk this week about a few things that happened, including a U.S. Supreme Court case that we'll discuss, along with the IRS giving us HSA numbers for 2024 and talking about how getting fixated on a particular way to view a situation costs the IRS a bunch of potential tax assessment in court. But let's start and go over. The first thing we'll talk about here, just in review, we'll talk about the fact the IRS ruled in favor of the IRS in regard to a situation where they're not required to notify a party who is named essentially, you know, as a party of interest, you know, let's say as somebody whose records I want from the bank in certain cases in a collection case. And we'll talk about that issue and interpretation. We'll also talk about a case where an IRS agent got so distracted by what turned out to be a very minor issue and misread it to think it was the whole issue in a way that he failed to investigate what was really the big potential questions that never got looked at by the service. And at the end of the day, the taxpayers got out of tax court without owing a single dollar of tax, even though it's pretty clear the judge was a little skeptical that that probably should have been the result. Had the IRS actually raised the issues and paid attention to the issues, they probably should have been paying attention to. And finally, we're going to talk about the 2024 HSA and accepted benefit HRA inflation adjusted amounts. The IRS releases those. As always, this is the first inflation adjusted set of numbers we get for a year. And we're getting them this year in May. So let's go to the Supreme Court's case of Pacelli versus the IRS, U.S. Supreme Court case number 211599. And the decision came down from the Supreme Court on May the 18th. Now, we're going to talk about IRC section 7609, because this is what this revolves around. And generally, 7609 was enacted by Congress a few years ago to require the IRS when they go to a third party and ask, for instance, let's say your bank for copies of records that relate to you, uh, that the IRS has to notify the taxpayer of this issue and tell the taxpayer that, you know, no, I said taxpayer. Yeah, the tax or any party named. So bottom line, if they go and I should say, yeah, well, the 769 is really about all of that sort of thing. However, there was an exception. This is where I get in here. In collection cases, let's say that the bank, that the IRS happens to believe that, you know, you might be hiding your money uh, with, you know, your sister, your brother, whoever. And so they might want to subpoena the bank records of your sister. Now, the question becomes, do they have to notify you? If, in fact, that's not a joint bank account that, you know, is with your sister, but this is an account for which you have no legal obligation or no legal interest is the key. So here comes the question we're going to look at. So we have a delinquent taxpayer who has no legal interest in the accounts or records being requested. Does the IRS have to give notice to, in this case, your sister, that there is a summons being issued? And so that your sister could go to court and fight that because obviously her personal records are going to be going to information about her personally will be going to the IRS. 
The 6th, 7th, and 10th Circuit ruled that no legal interest is required to trigger this exception. Now, this exception in the rule here for notification, generally the theory abound it, you know, the theory comes around based on the idea that if a taxpayer has already, now we have an assessment, let's say against them, they're in collection, they owe the tax, they may very well be trying to hide the money. And if notifications are sent out before the summons can be enforced, it's very likely the taxpayer who we're pursuing will quickly move funds out of his sister's account and move them somewhere else and, you know, basically make it very difficult to trace where they're going. So the theory is that in a collection situation, you probably don't want to give advance notice in that situation. So Congress allowed for it. However, the, while well, the 6th, 7th, and 10th circuits said that you didn't have to have any legal interest. So that my example there, I'm going to go get my, I'm going to go, the IRS is going to go get my sister's bank account records because they believe I may be putting money in there. And so they want to look for things like, you know, am I using, is my sister's account being used to pay expenses, which suggests I'm running money through there. And if we start tracing where money came in and out of her account, we may find where my stash is hidden. That's the key. Now, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, where I am at and where my clients are at, ruled just the opposite. They required delinquent taxpayer to have some legal interest in the object of the summons for this exception to apply. So in the Ninth Circuit, the IRS would have had to have notified my sister. Notice I said would have had to, because obviously that gives away which way the Supreme Court's going. They're going to side with the Sixth, Seventh, and Tenth Circuits and say that, in fact, if you does the question whether or not I have any legal interest, I have any direct ability to reach into that account and transfer things, any direct legal control, doesn't matter for this purpose. That's going to be the key. Now, the, the Supreme Court took up the case, and Polesi, Polselli came, I should say, from the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals. They took up this case to resolve the split because while, while the Sixth Circuit said, yep, IRS is right, it was a 3-2 split decision of the panel, which opens up the question that, yeah, there seems to be some dispute. One of the judges on the panel cited, you know, basically said, hey, wait, the Ninth Circuit's got this right. You know, there needs to be this. And so we get into this particular question, right? And the real question is going to come down to one of statutory interpretation. What does the statute say? And that's how the Supreme Court is going to decide this case. That shouldn't surprise people. The Supreme Court, definitely, at least the current court, certainly, and I should say probably the court for about the last decade or so, uh, for sure, has leaned heavily on the theory that, you know, they're going to try to use a statute as much as possible. And we got back, if you go back to the uh, case that we had with the Mayo Foundation case in the Supreme Court, that for tax law told us very clearly, and actually for law in general, we've seen this in other cases, that if a statute unambiguously answers the question of how something should be treated for tax purposes, then we're done. Now, Mayo went and said, if there is ambiguity and the IRS has issued regs on that issue and those regs are not, you know, an abuse of discretion or just, you know, highly unreasonable, basically, that that interpretation, as long as it itself is reasonable, even if it's not the only way to do it, that that interpretation would have basically prim be the primary way to follow this. 
So let's talk about this because this one's going to just look at the statute. Now, those 7609A1 says essentially, if there is a summons requires giving of testimony relating to production of any portions of records made or kept or related to the, you know, basically to a person right there, other than the person summoned who is identified in the summons, then the notice of the summons shall be given to any person so identified within a three days, etc., so they can have a right to challenge the summons. And that was part of the problem because, because the Supreme Court had ruled previously that the IRS's summons power was such that they could summons data on taxpayers from people like their bank and they didn't have to tell the service, they could contact third parties and didn't have to tell the service they were doing this. Well, Congress put in 7609 to essentially clamp down on that and say IRS has to notify people. But they did give us an exception at 7609C2D. And that tells us that this particular rule does not apply to any summons that's issued in aid of collection. And that term will be very important of. And then there are two cases. An assessment made or judgment rendered against the person with respect to whose liability the summons is issued or category two. The liability at law or an equity of any transferee or fiduciary of any person referred to in the first rule. So basically those two conditions, we don't have to give notices to any party, you know, uh, beyond the person who we issued the summons to. We obviously have to tell them, you know, we're issuing a summons. That, that's how we're gonna get the data from them. But we don't have to tell anybody else in these collection scenarios. Again, the Supreme Court points out in the part of this decision that obviously a reason for that is in a collection, there's a good chance the other party, when we're in this deep in collections, there's a very good chance the other party's playing hide the money. So we need to have a way to do it without. Now, the facts of this case, basically for 12 years, uh, Remo Pacelli underpaid his federal taxes. Now, the IRS eventually determined he was liable for unpaid amounts and other penalties, and official assessments were made against him totaling more than $2 million. Now, a revenue officer, Michael Bryant, went to collect the money and developed a few leads trying to find assets because, of course, Mr. Pacelli was not exactly, you know, wanting them to find these assets, right? And he found that, uh, you know, where he may have been concealed them, he focused on bank accounts that belonged to his wife, uh, Hannah Pacelli, and he also knew that he'd paid nearly $300,000 toward part of his outstanding tax liability from an account owned by an entity called Dulce Hotel Management, LLC. And they figured that, you know, they might have some control over money in there, that there may be some funds in there that you can reach in because it's not normal, you know, for an entity like this, you know, just any entity to pay a $300,000 personal tax liability. As well, to further the investigation, he issued a summons under 7602 to the law firm Abraham and Rose PLC, where, he, where the taxpayer had been a client. The firm produced no records in response saying did not retain any of the documents requested. So he decided to go one step further. Again, looking for concealed records. He issued, a summons, issued summonses to three banks, uh, three big banks, Wells Fargo, Bank of America, and J.P. Morgan Chase. Okay. Now he issued a summons to Wells Fargo talking about financial records of his wife and Dulce Hotel Management. He also issued summonses to J.P. Morgan Chase and Bank of America, seeking copies of all bank statements related to Mr. Priscilla's and petitioners 
uh, Jerry R. Abraham PC and the law firm Abraham and Rose PLC, uh, basically. Now, the IRS did not provide notice of these third-party summonses, but the banks in question did notify their customers that, hey, you know, the IRS just gave us a summons asking for all the information, for various information from your accounts. We thought you might want to know. So because of that, the parties filed a motion in U.S. District Court to quash the summons. Now, in this case, they lost on their attempt to quash the motion. Basically, the courts ruled that, in fact, uh, because the IRS, in essence, they, there was not this statute that required notice and a right to challenge the summons, that effectively the federal government had not waived its sovereign immunity. 7609A1 does waive that immunity against suit to challenge the summons, but they said, but in your case, because you're not covered by the exception, well, you have the exception, I should say, covers you, you don't have the right to go to court and stop this summons from being enforced against the bank, so we can't hear your complaints. Okay. Now, the actual opinion will outline some key issues Supreme Court has been using to interpret a statute. And these are things you should understand because whenever a new tax law comes out, quite often all we have is a statute to work from. So it's important to understand how the service, or how I should say, the courts, in this case the Supreme Court, who, by the way, when they, they set out rules in this area, that pretty much controls everybody else down the line in courts. Number one rule that we have is that the text of the law unambiguously answers the question, that's the answer. If you were following along back in early 2021, on my, broad, on my podcast, you would have probably had me when I walked through why I believed at that point the law required that you could not have employee retention credits uh, for relative, basically employee retention credits could not be used for wages of majority owner unless the majority owner had no living relatives. Now, a lot of people were really upset about that and said, well, Congress couldn't have meant that. That wasn't what they're Irrelevant. If the law itself requires it, that is your answer. By the way, that is the position the IRS eventually took uh, much later in the year on that position. And frankly, I'm very sure that is a position the court would take. They've been very consistent down this road. Uh, also, they will point out, and we had that in the case, I think, two weeks ago, but, you know, the courts can adopt absurd laws. I should say Congress can adopt an absurd law. And generally, even if it's absurd, Congress needs to fix it. The courts do not, and the Supreme Court greatly frowns upon courts adding implied provisions if there's, you know, if there's no ambiguity inherent in the statute. You know, we're not going to imply things or, for instance, you know, kind of out of thin air, reach out and decide, like some people wanted us to do for the ERC, that, well, Congress intended for owners to be able to use this. So, therefore, if the statute doesn't quite say that, it's really meant, though, so we're going to add this implied special rule. And it's like, no, you don't add implied provisions absent ambiguity. The court's position has been very consistently that Congress wrote the law. If Congress does not like what they wrote, and quite often they have no clue what they wrote, if they don't like what they wrote, then Congress needs to go change the law. It is not the jobs of the court's to become the legislators, legislatures, you know, editors. You go ahead and go back in and fix things like, well, you really didn't mean this, I assume. You know, tough luck. You, we're going to assume you wrote it, you voted on it, the president signed the bill, 
you must have meant this. That's the way this works. Okay. And when we get to the opinion, the Supreme Court and the majority opinion, it was, I should say majority, uh, there is, you know, all nine justices agreed with the result. We have two justices with a concurring opinion, Justice Jackson and Justice Gorsuch. Uh, Justice Jackson wrote the concurring opinion. Justice Gorsuch uh, basically signed on to it. Uh, but the majority opinion penned by Chief Justice John Roberts doesn't take long to tell us how it's going to turn out. He tells us when he starts the analysis of the decision that, you know, the question presented is whether the exception to those requirement applies where only or delinquent taxpayer has a legal interest, only applies where they have a legal interest in accounts or records summoned by the IRS. And he goes straight in to tell us a straightforward reading of the statutory text provides a ready answer. Colon, the notice exception does not contain such a limitation. Now, this is important to understand. As I said, the courts aren't going to write text that's not there. Right? We talked about that. We talked about the issue, if you remember, about the uh, you know, abusive CRT, where they were trying to claim that nothing in the law said, you know, specifically that a CRT was covered by the general rule that, you know, the recipient of a gift gets care of a basis. And as was pointed out in that case, you know, by the tax court, it doesn't need to, right? In essence, we don't have to go in there. And the same thing is true here. They have a set of three conditions under which, basically, and we'll talk about those three conditions, if they're met, that allow the IRS to not need to issue the summons and prevents the uh, party who is named in, the, you know, who's basically who's named or who's been kind of involved in this summons to be able to challenge the summons. Because again, if those three conditions are met, you can't go add a fourth one that Congress never wrote. And that's what they're doing. As they say, none of the three components for excusing, for, ex, for excusing notice in this section mentions a taxpayer legal interest in records sought by the IRS, much less requires that a taxpayer maintain such an interest for the exception to apply. Missing wording. And the court concludes, had Congress wanted to include a legal interest requirements, it certainly knew how to do so, pointing out you know, additional rules Congress put in other parts of 7609 that did impose special requirements that limited the power of the IRS specifically. They're saying, look, they knew the issue, they knew what was going on, uh, and they chose not to require there to be a legal interest. And if they don't like that, well, they don't say that here, but basically the bottom line is, if they don't like it, hey, run a bill through the House and Senate, get the president's signature, and you can impose that requirement. But, they but the courts are not going to impose it. Now, the taxpayers, kind of Supreme Court, should narrowly define the term in aid of collection. And they're going to try to argue that that's our ambiguity. They're saying, because again, one of the key issues here is, remember, only if a summons is issued in aid of collection does this particular, these two exceptions apply. They're saying, well... That's where the legal interest comes in, right? You know, there's no legal interest. You couldn't actually find something, you know, getting copies of the canceled checks from my sister, or in this case, the wife's bank account, doesn't really give you some way to immediately pay off his liability, right? It's not going to directly solve the issue. So it's not in aid of collection. But the Supreme Court basically takes the IRS position that the you know, this summons just needs to have a reasonable chance of, procure, of producing useful information for collection. Not 100% sure, but just a reasonable chance. It's got to be reasonably related, right? 
Now, as we said, the petitioners want that narrow definition, as the court case says, and they're claiming it has to be an inquiry that only directly advances a collection instance, right? They contend it does not directly advance those efforts unless it is targeted an account containing assets the IRS can collect to satisfy the taxpayer's liability. And they say the only way a summons issued to a third party will produce collectible assets is if the delinquent taxpayer has a legal interest in the targeted account. In essence, if he has no legal interest in his wife's account, then, you know, he, he can't really reach in there and pay it. He's going to have to ask her or do something else to the side. So, in essence, therefore, his wife deserves to be told that the IRS is going to be is asking for copies of records on her account. But the court says that does not give fair reading to the phrase in aid of collection. Right. According to petitioners, the phrase requires a summons produce collectible assets. But then they go to the American Heritage Dictionary to say aid means to help or assist. Right. Petitioner agree. Right. Even if a summons may not itself reveal taxpayers' assets can be collected, it may nonetheless help the IRS find such assets. And one of the reasons why you're going to see the courts go this route is, let's remember, the Supreme Court has to consider if they rule this way, you know, the way the taxpayers want, well, this is going to be looked at in courts in other contexts, including other law enforcement contexts, right? Where, you know, we're going to be seeing, well, if I can just move it to an account that I don't directly control, then, you know, suddenly all of these special rules could apply. So they said, so they said, consider the case where, you know, the IRS investigation suggested that he often uses other entities to shield assets from the service, right? You know, we thought he was using Dolce Hotel Management because we found payments, you know, going from that account for the taxes that we had. That was, you know, wrote on the checks on their account. We knew about that, right? And he also might have access to and use of his wife's bank accounts. So based on those leads, he requested that Abraham and Polt Rose produce canceled checks, wire transfers, credit documents, and other instruments used by Mr. Pelosi to pay the firm. You know, whether he maintains a legal interest in those records is, a, as I said, a confounding question, is neither here nor there, right? Uh, the IRS could not, of course, use those records of canceled checks and like to satisfy their tax deficiency. But if they showed money from that third party, Dolce Hotel Management, being used to pay his accounts there or to pay others through Abraham and Rose, that could aid in collecting funds from the hotel management, right? It appears his funds go in there. They keep paying things for him. It indicates that they are his funds in that case or they could find, identify other alter egos where he might have hidden assets. Um, by the same token, the summons is used to three banks sought records to identify entity whose funds Mr. Pelosi had control over without formal ownership, and the bank counts to such entities. As with the request issued to the law firm, even if three bank statements did not reveal bank account in which he had a legal interest, they could lead to assets parked somewhere that the IRS could then go after uh, and attempt to obtain you know, the $2 million he owed them. They said IRS investigators are like any others. They talk about detectives may very well order forensic testing or speak to witnesses who identify a culprit, even if those activities are unlikely in and of themselves to solve the crime. By conflating activities that help advance a goal with activities to accomplish it, the, basically the petitioners in this case, those seeking to stop it, which wasn't the taxpayer, but in this case, his wife, the law firm, etc., uh, ignore the meaning of an ADA, right? Well, the taxpayer argues, okay, a second way. And this is a way that is an issue of statutory interpretation. One of the key issues we were trying to interpret a statute is generally, if the interpretation you're posing of the statute renders other texts in the statute superfluous, 
right? Unnecessary. Then you're probably getting it wrong. And they're saying, if you don't require a legal interest in the asset, remember there were those two ways uh, under collections. We had the statute, you know, the assessment and tax and, you know, things basically for the taxpayer. Or if it was related to just a liability, we could go look at things for a, you know, we look at it for the fiduciary or transferee. So they're saying, well, realistically, if they don't need interest in the asset, then you don't need those distinctions, right? You know, that, that's why if, if the thing is involved, we don't need those distinctions. But the court did not agree. They said the first clause requires an assessment or judgment, while the second only requires liability. The issue that the taxpayers are arguing was the first clause, you know, basically, if you had to have an interest in the account under the first clause, which is what this one came under, right, which was an assessment or judgment. Well, you know, that 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 would make sense then why when we got to a transferee and fiduciary that we didn't have to have a legal interest. That was the reason why we need the second clause to open it up. But, you know, the Supreme Court says, no, you're, you're missing other details. The, the first clause required an assessment or judgment. The second only requires liability. And there are cases where a liability will arise, even though there's yet to be a formal assessment of tax. They're saying those cases exist. Second clause also addresses different entities. The liability case addresses transferees or fiduciaries rather than the taxpayer in this case. So we're looking for that background. So they're saying, and the court said, yeah, that difference may not matter very often, but it does need to be a difference that'll matter very often. It just needs to be a difference. That would matter in some cases. They clearly it does. They also point out it can make a big difference if you had a bankruptcy involved as then it would go to the bankruptcy trustee. And so, yeah, they're saying, look, that, that therefore it makes sense why there was a difference. Now, finally, the taxpayer argued Congress was, in, was concerned about privacy when they adopted this rule. They were really shocked. You know, the Supreme Court allowed this broad investigation by the IRS without notifying people that they were getting records from third parties. Um, you know, they're, they're saying, well, Congress was upset about that. And so because of that, you know, you, you, they really couldn't have intended this broad application of this exception that you should have to restrict it so that, you know, we don't put at risk the privacy of the parties involved, right? But the court said, no, the history argues for the opposite rule. What the court's going to tell us is that, in fact, Congress knew all about how broad the court's interpretation had been. And they said 7209 pretty much goes in and tells us in detail you know, about some very specific cases where, you know, very limited and specific cases where we can do the exception and they spell out different criteria. They're saying, so if the court truly wanted there to be a legal interest, right? They would have said so if that was our concern, privacy. They said the fact that they were aware of this and they crafted this provision specifically to give a carve out from their general prohibition where you'd have to notify well, they, they said that indicates Congress that this is not a case of some accidental oversight and ambiguity, but rather, no, con Congress is aware of this. And again, remember, Congress, you know, again, as they're going to tell you, they write the law, you need to follow the law. That's what they're, right? Now, they did say, and this is where we get to concurring decisions, because two justices, uh, Justice Jackson and uh, Justice Gorsuch, um, Justice Jackson pinned it. Justice Gorsuch signed on to it. Uh, 
to have a pretty long discussion about how the IRS shouldn't run too far with this decision. That, you know, there are clearly restrictions, even if the legal interest rule is not one of those restrictions, that this does not allow the IRS to conduct, you know, just a wild fishing expedition. Justice Jackson specifically posited a case where, well, you know, we, we think this uh, guy who's trying to evade paying the tax, we think he's using a lot of fake identities and that also in doing that, he like is using, let's say, three or four different credit cards with different names. So we know that he uses a particular dry cleaner, right, to get his clothes cleaned. And we're thinking, you know, he, 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 might, he might change up the credit card he uses there. So, you know, Justice Jackson posits that the service could ask for every single invoice, every single credit card charge slip, right, from Visa, MasterCard, American Express, that went through this dry cleaner, which would show everybody that went to this dry cleaner. And they could do all of this without ever telling the dry cleaner that they could do a wildly invasive look at the entire financial details of this dry cleaning operation because one particular customer who made up a very minor part of their sales for the year, you know, might have used more than one credit card. And she's saying, you know, that that would, in her view, and that of presumably of Justice Gorsuch, be a clear overreach. However, the majority decided that this was not the time or the place to talk about the limits of this. They would leave that for a later case. So that's that, that's the reason why we have the concurring opinion. But in any event, 9-0 decision says definitely in this case, the IRS does not have to give notice. Next up, we're going to talk about the case of Carson versus Commissioner. This is yet another tax court bench opinion. We've had one of those, another one recently. This one is docket number 23086-25, and it was issued on May the 18th. Now, the IRS went to tax court with what they stated was a hobby loss case involving an activity that was a business for the taxpayer's children's rodeo activities. At least that's how the service viewed the case. However, that wasn't what was really going on, right? And it's not as if the taxpayer tried to hide that fact. The taxpayer, in fact, specifically told the agent what was happening, but the agent nevertheless continued down the, oh, this is a business for the kids' rodeo entries. Okay, we'll talk about how we get there and how the agent really should have been looking somewhere else, but he wasn't, right? And what was going on, as the court makes pretty clear in its decision, it raises a number of questions on its own, but the IRS fouled up entirely by blowing their chance to look into that and rather issuing the assessment and going to court on a totally different theory that once we got to court and the judge just you know, paid attention to what the IRS had been told by the taxpayer said, well, you know, you, you have no evidence to show even the thing you're alleging, right? You can't tell us how much was really a loss from this activity for the children's rodeo work, right? You can't really tell us that number. And, you know, and you never mentioned this much bigger problem. And we're not going to let you just now suddenly like go reopen the exam and come back later and do this. Sorry, you went to assessment. You did all of this. It's too late in the game to do something else. And, you know, it's, it's not fair to anybody. So I'm not going to let you do it. So let's talk about the facts of this case. In 2009, Mrs. Carson's mother transferred most of her property, including a ranch, to revocable trust that she controls during her life. Now, her mother had received the ranch from 
Mrs. Carson's grandmother, right? So her grandmother died. It passed to Mrs. Carson's mother. Mrs. Carson's mother sets up a revocable trust, you know, revocable living trust she controls during her life. Now, you know, she is very much still alive. Uh, and during her life, if she dies and is predeceased by Mrs. Carson's stepfather, presumably her husband, uh, the property of the trust is to be distributed to Mrs. Carson and her brother equally. If the mother dies before the stepfather dies, then the property of the trust becomes a life estate for the stepfather and at his death would be distributed to Mrs. Carson and her brother equally. So a fairly traditional revoking, revocable living trust estate planning job. Now remember, because it is revocable and Mrs. Carson could just reach in, take all the assets out of the trust and render everything else irrelevant going forward, you know, it's going to be considered a grantor trust and everything in the trust, all the income, et cetera, in the trust would be taxable to Mrs. Carson or her mother, I should say not Mrs. Carson. But then it did something weird. In successive agreements dated in 2013 and 2016, Mrs. Carson agreed with her mother that she, Mrs. Carson, would contribute financially to the ranch. And every year they would then eventually agree at the end of the year, how much, if any, cash distributions would be made from the ranch to Mrs. Carson. Okay, this is kind of weird. So Mrs. Carson is paying for the expenses of the ranch, but she only gets money from the ranch if her mother and her agree that she should get some. And they never agreed that she should get any, right? That was gonna happen. So from 2014 to 2019, she made substantial financial contributions, I'll get the word out, to the ranch by paying its expenses, okay? And, you know, the ranch made money by selling cattle. The receipt from cattle sales were reported on the returns of Mrs. Carson's mother, period. So all the income coming in was making income from selling cattle and all the income coming in was getting reported on Mrs. Carson's mother's return. Mrs. Carson was going to essentially report the expenses for the ranch on her return. She didn't report any income because mom, mom never really agreed to allow any cash distributions and none, none was ever made to Mrs. Carson. Now, this arrangement is odd for a lot of reasons. Like, first thing is, it really kind of looks like a partnership, kind of. Secondly, it's really weird because remember, since the ranch was held in a revocable living trust and Mrs. Carson could remove the ranch from the trust at any particular time, it's a really odd partnership where I agree to pay expenses for this ranch. I agree the trust gets to keep all the income um, but I get no security whatsoever, right? Tough luck. You know, mom decides she doesn't like something I did. She decides to disinherit me and, you know, decide the ranch will go to my brother. You know, when I die, uh, she, she could do that. She could take the money out. She could take, you know, take everything out of this trust, form a brand new trust. The brand new trust would not give anything to Mrs. Carson. Um, and you know, so it would, it's a weird, there's a whole bunch of issues with this structure. And the court will recognize that, you know, there's also whether related parties are assigning income that is not in line with the economics of the situation, which is also probably a very real question here, right? It's not really in line with what's going on. But unfortunately, the IRS agent was distracted by a bright, shiny object, the rodeo activities, right? Their two children lived at the ranch. They helped in the ranch business raising cattle for sale. They used horses, some which involved to compete in cash prize rodeo. 
So, you know, they'd use the horses when they're on the ranch, but then those horses would also be used by the kids in rodeos, right? And they perform manual labor for neighbors of the ranch. Okay. Now, here's where it gets and what I think attracted the IRS's attention. In 2017 and 2018, the only income report, remember, since Mrs. Carson didn't get any distributions, none of the sale of cattle income ever got reported on their Schedule F. What was reported there was uh, the rodeo winnings from their children, and in 2018, they added a small amount of compensation of labor for working for local ranches. Now, in both cases, the amount of income was minimal compared to the expenses in question. But again, neither year did either ranch show any income from any activity except the children's rodeo winnings. And, you know, in the year 2018, $1,867 for compensation for labor performed by the Carson's children for other local ranchers. That was the bright shiny that got the attention. Kind of like those things, remember the old line about the dog, right? You have the dog who's supposed to be checking for stuff, but then always looks up and sees squirrel. Yes, the IRS agent saw squirrel. So we now have squirrel and he wants to chase it, right? Because this looks like, you know, in his mind, he now sees a textbook hobby loss situation where parents have kids doing something, you know, that the kids just want to do, you know, kids participate in activities. Those activities may be expensive. Uh, maybe they do have some cash prizes. So if there's a little bit of cash prize involved, you know, the parents somehow say, oh, well, you know, little Johnny's competing in whatever we're competing in. And, you know, little Johnny wins $2,000, you know, th this year from that. So we're going to say it's a business and therefore claim a deduction for $200,000 worth of expenses that relate to Johnny's competition in, you know, trying to be a professional spelling bee winner or whatever Johnny's trying to be a, a winner in. Okay, so that's kind of where we go. Now, we've definitely seen cases like that and we've seen those fall apart entirely, right? It could be the taxpayer's children. It could be the taxpayer themselves doing something. We've seen some cases over the years where they were pursuing auto racing or some other activities where there were prizes awarded but the prizes were nowhere near being able to offset what they were putting into the activity, which was kind of where we were looking there. So, yeah, we're looking for that activity. Okay, so watch out for the squirrel. Let's get rid of the squirrel. So, in essence, the agent determined that this activity was a rodeo solely. He did that despite being told by Mrs. Carson. She explained exactly what was going on here. Ranch came, ranch was my mother's, right? It was my mother's. It went into the trust. We and, you know, she and her agreed that I would pay the expenses of this ranch, you know, and, um, you know, and mom would decide, you know, how much of the ranch income I would get. Okay, so this whole thing's put in front of the agent, but the agent continues to, uh, to just view the entire thing as rodeo activity. Okay. Ignores entirely the issue about, well, if we accept her story, um, you know, we got a whole bunch of other things we should raise and a whole bunch of other objections we should raise. Objections, which I think reading, you know, what we get in this case, the court probably would have accepted. Okay. So the court said at trial, right, she testified they the expenses were mainly related to the ranch or the rodeo. 
uh, the IRS litigating position is premised on the Schedule F expenses being the rodeo activity only. Uh, you know, they claim they lost $120,000 per year entering their children in rodeo, when in reality they lost this money primarily by paying for ranching activities. And the IRS never challenged the profit motive of selling the cattle. In fact, profit motive probably wasn't our problem. It was assignment of income, right? You know, basically allocating income and deductions among two related parties in a way that doesn't reflect what was economically going on. But in any event, the IRS position under Section 183, the Hobby Laws Rule, makes no sense um, in light of the court's determination that these were ranching expenses related to raising cattle, right? Different problem, right? Now, the court said, and IRS, it's too late to go back and change your story. They said, first thing is, yes, there is some rodeo expenses in there. Almost certainly there are some expenses related to rodeo in there. But because, you know, the taxpayer has detailed records. We already know that. However, she didn't bring him to trial because she, you know, quite reasonably concluded that you weren't challenging the support for her records. So, you know, the support for the expenses claim, you were just challenging everything on hobby loss rules. And so proving what, you know, what expenses related to what part of the activities wasn't something she was ready to produce a trial. And the court said it's perfectly reasonable she wasn't ready. And secondly, they said, so if we try to figure out how much of the rodeo, you know, how many of the expenses related to rodeo, so we could theoretically do a hobby loss on the rodeo activity, uh, you know, the court said the most we could do is what would be rough justice, um, you know, coming up with some wild guess as to how much of the expenses related to the rodeo. And frankly, IRS, it's your fault that we'd have to do that. So we're not going to go ahead with this. We're going to say, basically, we're not sorting the deductions, so they held the, that the IRS had waived the right to refocus the challenge on the narrow rodeo activities because, you know, they they basically were responsible for the situation where we didn't know which expenses related to rodeo and which didn't. And they held, secondly, they said, look, at the end of the day, because you failed to bring things up, I'm going to hold that the activities reported on Schedule F for 2017 and 2018 were engaged in for profit because, you know, there's no way we can tell from here and I realize the burdens on the taxpayer, but you specifically outlined the reasons why this problem existed. That was your assertion and your assertions absurd on its face. And I don't then have to just assume, well, it must have been a hobby loss anyway. No, I don't need to do that. You do need to have, while your assertion is given basically the presumption of correctness, your assertion is clearly not correct and I'm not going to allow you to come up with a secondary assertion at this point, because frankly, there's not sufficient information today that you looked into or that you suggested that the taxpayer bring to this case, you know, to make that determination in way, shape or form. Now, this is why I said the court now decides to twist the knife a little bit. You know, the court recognizes the presence of possible concerns related to this relationship in question. There are a lot of questions about this relationship and the tax consequences of structuring this thing this way. Lots of problems. This is definitely not an endorsement by the court of what, you know, Mrs. Carson and her mother did. However, they said the government did not opt to delve into or raise those issues and their result, they weren't part of what's before the court. They're not part of the decision. End of game. Sorry, IRS. You lose. Okay, so it, it's one of those things to watch for. Now, you might think, well, what does this matter? It's just the IRS getting something wrong. 
But what happened here is something that happens to us in tax practice. I want to point that out. And it's something that I see practitioners do too. This is not just something we see the IRS do, right? We see the IRS do it. They, they can do it as well, right? What happens is quite often when a tax issue problem or matter arises in the first, when we first see it, we form an immediate impression of what the problem is, what the issue is, and how this thing should be going forward. And the problem becomes a couple of problems that we as humans tend to have. And they divide into two categories of things that are very similar, related, but not quite the same. There is the concept of confirmation bias, right? Which is a key issue. Um, confirmation bias says once we have determined what we believe is the way something works or is, we tend to ignore or explain away quickly any information contrary to that and probably just don't even notice it, right? And overly focus on every little detail that backs up our assumption. Like in this case, that there was, once we discovered the kids are in rodeo, and then we discovered that, that the amount of their income was small on Schedule F versus the deductions reported on Schedule F. Well, you know, we just then, we were focused and the mindset kicked in that, oh, it, it's rodeo activity. And the fact that the agent was told multiple times about this problematic, let's be honest, agreement between mom and, you know, and the taxpayer that itself had all kinds of issues, but the agent didn't go there because the agent was now focused on only hearing that this was a rodeo activity. Totally missed the other problem. The other problem is a somewhat related thing, which is completion bias. And completion bias is that once we have a plan of attack, once we have a goal in mind, we tend to decide that's still our goal, even if contrary information comes up suggesting that we really need to change our focus here. In this case, again, the agent, again, because he was looking at this as solely a hobby loss issue and solely related to parents paying, parents paying huge sums of money for their kid's hobby and trying to write off against their wages, you know, he's totally focused on that view, um, missed the fact that, in fact, there was a secondary goal here. Instead of, in fact, you could, you probably should have just ignored the whole rodeo issue and focused more on the bigger problem of what mom, the agreement between mom, her mother, the trust, and the whole setup here, because it doesn't look like a, tr a trader business structure that any, that ever, would ever reasonably be entered into by two unrelated parties. So I, I think there was a lot of problems there, a lot of issues. I think it's very easy. The service could have argued that what the that what Mrs. Carson paid was somebody else's expenses, not hers, and so not deductible on her return. You know, they also could have claimed, and they would have pointed out that she had no assurance she would ever get anything from the ranch. Right? She, you know, the ranch could disappear from the trust tomorrow, and she could do nothing about it. And no rational person would have gone into and said, "I'm going to pay this money in." For this purpose, right? Secondly, if you even do think somehow she was in the business, then basically the expenses shouldn't have all ended up on Mrs. Carson's return and the income all on her mother's return. That there were other things, gifts or various other things happening, but it was not a trader business with a loss deduction on Mrs. Carson's return. I think there's a very, very, very good chance you, you could have developed lots of ways to attack this structure. But again, 
the agent was focused on only dealing with one thing. The agent had identified, he already had in his mind what the issue was. The solution to that is to nail him for the hobby loss. It's, and you know, you've got all this history of cases where people have done absurd things like this. So you're just so focused there, you, you didn't see. Even though there were red lights flashing and just things that should have gotten your attention, you focused on the other thing. I've seen practitioners do the same thing when they face a client issue. And this can cause problems, not just, you know, ignoring a big IRS problem that you should have seen coming, but also ignoring maybe even benefits to the client or positions that would have been taxpayer friendly because the additional information you got came after you had already committed to your view of the problem and your view of the solution. Always, always be ready to question your assumptions because, you know, we need to understand, be skeptical. Always, you know, make sure that you don't dismiss. If you look at new information, are you, are you currently looking at it from a confirmation bias perspective that nothing could change your mind or from a completion bias perspective, I already got this plan to solve this thing. So this is irrelevant. Don't worry about it. Right. Or take care of the situation. That was the problem here. It's a problem we see in practice quite often too. Okay. Let's talk about the new inflation adjusted. HSA and accepted benefit H or HSA and accepted benefit HRA limits for 2024. This is revenue procedure 2023-23, right? Now the one, and it was just on May a 16th. Now the increases this year are higher than the past, but that's basically due to inflation being higher than it's been in the past. That's not surprising. Hopefully it didn't surprise anybody. You have noticed, I hope. Hopefully you've noticed uh, what went on. If, if not, you probably haven't, you know, you know, you might wonder why there's less in your bank account these days. That could be part of it, higher costs. What's the annual contribution limits going to be for 24? A self-only HSA can have $4,150. It was $3,850 in 23 or is $3,850 this year, 2023. And family coverage goes to $8,300 you can put in the account as opposed to $7,750 for 2023. The minimum deductible to have a high deductible health plan for 2024 will rise to $1,600 for self-only. In 2023, $1,500 was the number. And family coverage, uh, that minimum high deductible health plan deductible has to be at least $3,200. It was $3,000 in 23. Okay. The maximum out-of-pocket expenses for a self-only program has to be capped at $8,050. That was $7,500 in 2023. Family coverage is $16,100. That was $15,000 in 2023. And if you have one of those accepted benefit HRAs, which I'm not really a fan of, but if you do have one of those in your, you know, HR portfolio, then the maximum, maximum amount newly available in the plan year is $2,150 this year, up from $1,950 in 2023. So again, this is just basic inflation adjusted numbers. This is always the earliest ones we get every year and the others will not start coming until normally October. So it's another five months plus before you'll probably hear about anything else. But this gives you the basic numbers for 2024 for health savings accounts and for, if you have one of these, accepted benefit health reimbursement arrangements. Okay. This has been the current federal tax developments for the week. Of, uh, let's see, this week is the 23rd, right? Or no, 22nd, May the 22nd, 2023. 
Uh, it's brought to you by Capital Financial Education and by your state side of CPAs. If you have any questions, you can email me, edzollers at currentfulltaxdevelopments.com. You can also check for me on the Connect sites for Arizona, New Jersey, Minnesota, Illinois, Washington. And I also do try to watch in if there's anything posted on Idaho's discussion boards, see if there's something there. If there is, I try to answer if I can. Otherwise, hopefully you're having a good week here in tax time. You got through your not-for-profit extensions. It lasts on the 15th. So now, now, now we're in that nice summer period where everything now is, uh, is getting the extended things taken care of as we race to our first due date on uh, September 15th. So you got a little bit of time there, four months to deal with it. Right, so we're heading toward that. But otherwise, uh, we will be back here next week talking about whatever goes on in the area of current federal tax developments.